Biden's goose is cooked, and everyone knows it. This past week was likely the most, the most unfortunate week for Biden for a whole host of reasons. Um, there was the damning but non-prosecuting report on his retention of classified documents, um, his horrific polling numbers, and his blatantly obvious cognitive decline. And that's putting it quite nicely. You know it's bad when the most liberal media outlet is saying things like this. Mr. President, Mr. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Many American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? What, what is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. Uh, he said, you know, this is your opinion. This isn't anybody else's opinion. Public polling clearly suggests that this is a serious concern that a lot of people have. So, you know, I took this as a, a president who uh, clearly wanted to sort of get out there, uh, show this sort of uh, fighting side to him. And we know in conversations that we've had with uh, Biden advisors, people who know him really well, that they think that they uh, he does sort of well in that setting when he's sort of shouting that uh, sort of fighting uh, and fighting back at questions, fighting back at the concerns. So I just wonder if there was uh, sort of this opportunity that the White House saw to put him in that setting, uh, take uh, some of these difficult questions that they expected that he would have. Biden falsely countered in that interview, saying it was either CNN's judgment or specifically MJ Lee's judgment, the, the reporter. Um, but in fact, she was just referring to a new ABC News Ipsos poll, which concluded that a staggering, but not surprising, 86% of Americans think that Joe Biden is too old to serve another term as president. Regardless, though, Biden shuffles out there and denies all of this in front of the nation's news outlets in a 12-minute press conference in which he forgets even more significant information and blames his retention of classified materials on his staff. Now, this has left so many liberals thumping their heads in wonder, asking why on earth would they let him do this? He's, he is running his campaign into the ground. Well, maybe, just maybe, this is what the Democrats want. Maybe they want Biden to metaphorically and politically hang himself if they can just give him enough rope. Maybe the conference was a distraction from the Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin interview, which we'll talk about today. Well, whether it's intentional or not, Biden is making the case against himself as the best person to be in the Oval Office for a second term. Just add to this train wreck the purposeful negligence of the southern border, the news about failing to converse with Vladimir Putin to end the Ukraine conflict, as you'll see today, and a continued investigation into his international corruption, Biden is on the brink of removal by either congressional impeachment or an invoking of the 25th Amendment. And all that I'm suggesting is that this might be on purpose, not from Biden, but from his party. Sure, you can call it conspiracy, but Biden's poll numbers are plunging below Trump's in almost every national poll. And this has been the case for months and months. 
And, and something has to be done for the Democrats to be able to retain political power. And it's because Americans are truly starting to wake up to the facts that Biden has wrecked the economy. He has endangered the entire world through his horrific foreign policies. And he's endangered the homeland by not enforcing immigration laws. No matter how much he projects onto Donald Trump or attempts to shift blame or attempts to lie about the results, none of it changes the reality of which Americans are progressively aware. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean some massive move of, of voting, people voting for Donald Trump. So the, the great question is, for the many moderate uh, Democrats and, and lunatic liberals, who in the world are you going to sub in to run as a formidable candidate against Donald Trump, who has, quite frankly, been vindicated on his immigration policies, his foreign policies, when the world was a much safer place, and his economic policies. Kamala doesn't have a shred of chance because her numbers are worse than Biden's. Gavin Newsom has a terrible track record as the governor of California. Uh, Hillary Clinton's third attempt would fail again. Michelle or Michael Obama is not going to do it either. Uh, Bernie Sanders is older and, and kookier than Biden. Um, honestly, there's no politician who stands a chance. So I was speculating on, on what outsider, someone outside of politics, there could be that would stand a political electoral chance against Trump. And then I saw this ad during the Super Bowl. want a man for president who's seasoned through and through a man who's old enough to know and young enough to do well it's up to you it's up to you it's strictly up to you american value 2024 is responsible for the content of this advertising i could be totally wrong and i can't believe i'm giving advice to the liberals but since you all think the devilish orange demagogue should be thrown into hell as opposed to the White House, I think that Robert Kennedy Jr. is your best chance. Otherwise, the, the 2024 train is hurtling towards a second Trump term this November. I'm Blake Watson, and this is Way the Free. best ways you can help our show other than by sharing today's content is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you were meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug, or you can sport the God Bless America shirt and of course the classic We The Free crest tee. We've even got stickers and a smells like freedom candle. That's right. So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. Welcome to episode 23. We've got so much to get to today because so much has happened in the last week. But I have to tell you, just in case you missed my show or couldn't find the show on YouTube last week, two of my segments were blocked on the platform. Apple blocked the use of uh, one of their promos when I was talking about their dystopian goggles. And Disney blocked my entire segment describing Jesus on The View 
um, the, the actor who plays Jesus on The Chosen, Jonathan Rumi. Ultimately, the, the, to get the video on the website, I uploaded the whole episode to Rumble, and the entire episode was unrestricted. So if you want to watch episode 22, that's where you can find it. Now, of course, we will talk about the Super Bowl uh, eventually and, and the woke Jesus commercial, but there was actually something else that happened that I think is, is much more, much more significant to humanity and global civilization, and that was Tucker Carlson's interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Practically all of the liberal media outlets condemned Tucker Carlson for conducting this interview. And almost none of the conservative outlets are talking about it, or they're hardly talking about it. And I find that unsettling in the least. Hypocritical in one sense because uh, numerous journalists from multiple outlets, liberal and conservative, have interviewed Vladimir Putin in the past. Four of the last seven U.S. presidents have had diplomatic relationships with Putin. So why is it that Tucker Carlson cannot question and press the most vilified man on the earth? Why is it that after a week of the interview being published online, that it has almost 20 million views on YouTube, and yet you have to dig to find it? And I should also mention that the interview has over 200 million views on X, which, once again, thanks to Elon Musk. Before we get into the substance of the interview, let me go back to 2022. When the Russians began to move on Ukraine, and Putin gave something like that of a declaration of war, everything was, quite frankly, extremely hazy and cloudy. And there were three reasons for this. One was that there were two completely different narratives, where one side, which was the majority, was saying that Putin, the, the evil dictator, was attacking Ukraine in order to steal what was Ukraine's and not theirs. There was uh, unanimous support on, on this side for Ukraine and unanimous condemnation and opposition to Russia. Yet, at the same time, there was a totally different narrative. Not quite the, the opposite of the, of the first narrative, but just a different one. And, and this was the one that I would describe as neutrality, like condemning the war, but criticizing the corruption of Zelensky and Ukraine. And let me elaborate a little further on, on this point. All of the people that I disagree with on nearly everything were in complete support of Zelensky and Ukraine and opposed to Putin and Russia. I'm talking about politicians, celebrities, media figures, and all of their fans and pawns across the country. Especially the liberals, but most of the Republicans in, in government even. And even the, the so-called conservative news media were in lockstep with each other on this subject. Now just think of it, the same people who fight for the right of women to murder their children, who fight for kids to have their bodies mutilated to comport with their mental illness, who defend useless and open border policy, who claim Palestinians are oppressed by Israel. These same people are the ones who lined up to immediately support Ukraine. 
a country I've hardly heard anyone talk about in my 31 years on earth. The other side was mocked as a fringe conspiracy group, or they were labeled as isolationists because they didn't want to get involved in another war somewhere far from home. The third contribution, though, which added to my utter confusion, was a whole conglomeration of random things. First of all, Trump was impeached for a phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Second, Hunter Biden was working for a Ukrainian energy company prior to this. Third, in Putin's declaration, one of his justifications was the denazification of Ukraine. Fourth, I literally saw photos of Ukrainian soldiers with Nazi emblems on their uniforms. I was seeing numerous articles of the corruption of Ukraine. Sixth, uh, Zelensky was a television actor on which, on the show, he played the president of Ukraine, and then he ran for president in real life and became the president. Like, is, is that not weird to anybody? And seventh, remember, when the Libs denied the results of the 2016 election, saying that Trump had colluded with the Russians to steal the election, and, and we spent years investigating this claim and spent tens of millions of taxpayer dollars doing so. In other words, I was utterly confused, and I couldn't come to any conclusions about Ukraine and Russia, so I simply stayed out of it. If anybody asked me about it, I simply replied that something is not right about this, but I don't know what it is. It bothered me that people I greatly respected were in lockstep with the liberals on this issue. But anyhow, I was silent on the subject because I had so many questions I didn't have the answers to. And there was no one answering the questions. That is, until last week. If I can make a few blanket statements about this interview, they are as follows. Number one, we have been lied to. Second, Vladimir Putin and Russia are not who we think they are. And three, this conflict in Ukraine is not at all, not at all, what it has been portrayed and propagated to be. I'm going to kindly ask you to find the middle ground between skeptic and optimist, the space between enemy and friend, audience and critic, Please suspend for the next hour all that you think you know about the parties involved. Vladimir Putin, Russia, Ukraine, the West, the United States, etc. Because this is the most significant inter interview of my entire lifetime. On February 22nd, 2022, you addressed your country in a nationwide address when the conflict in Ukraine started. And you said that you were acting because you had come to the conclusion that the United States through NATO might initiate a quote, surprise attack on our country. And to American ears, that sounds paranoid. Tell us why you believe the United States might strike Russia out of the blue. How did you conclude that? 
Now we're not gonna play the entire interview. It's over two hours long, but there's just one thing I want you to notice from the very start of the interview. For those of you who are listening, Tucker and President Putin are sitting in the Kremlin, and while Tucker begins to ask his opening question, Putin removes his wristwatch and sits it on the table. Uh, to most, that's insignificant, but it actually is a significant gesture. This is a sign of respect from the president of Russia to an American journalist to whom he owes zero respect. Uh, that my, my time is yours. I'm not going to look at the clock. We can talk as long as you want, Tucker. Now, I know we've just begun, but this is the, the scary man you've been told about. Pay attention to his tone, his demeanor, his body language. Pay attention to the fact that he has no teleprompter, no note cards, no papers. He's just sitting there having a conversation with Tucker. You will hear Tucker ask his questions. Then you'll hear a pause because someone is translating for the president. Then as Putin begins to respond in Russian, you'll hear the translator for us and for Tucker. Here's Putin's first response to this question about a surprise attack from American forces through NATO. It's not that America, the United States, was going to launch a surprise strike on Russia. I didn't say that. Are we having a talk show or a serious conversation? <laughs> Here's the quote. Thank you. It's a formidable serious talk. Because your basic education is in history as far as I understand. Yes. So, if you don't mind, I will take only 30 seconds or one minute to give you a short reference to history for giving you a little historical background. Please. He makes a joke with Tucker, and then he knows Tucker's affinity for history, so he asks if he can give Tucker a little 30-second history lesson, which ends up being a 30-minute history lesson. Um, at first, Tucker thinks that he's just filibustering. But there was a point to all of his historical accounting, which he simply recited from memory, and that was this. President Putin believes they have an historic claim to Ukraine. In fact, he spent much of the interview, but especially the first 30 minutes, explaining the complicated geopolitical history of what I'll call historic Russia. He mentions dates, history, monuments, legal documents, names, and family history as evidence. He literally begins in the 8th century and works his way to present day to make this case, describing how, over time, the empire was fragmented into pieces, similar to how we would describe the kingdoms or tribes of Israel. Areas of land changed hands of control, just as has happened throughout world history. After about Eight minutes of this history lesson, Putin does the following. So that you don't think that I'm inventing things. I'll give you these documents. Well, I, I, it doesn't sound like you're inventing it. I'm not sure why it's relevant to what happened two years ago. But still, these are documents from the archives, copies. 
Here are the letters from Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the man who then controlled the power in this part of the Russian lands that is now called Ukraine. He wrote to Warsaw demanding that their rights be upheld. And after being refused, he began to write letters to Moscow, asking to take them under the strong hand of the Moscow Tsar. There are copies of these documents. I will leave them for your good memory. There were several documents given there, but the ones to which Putin is referring are letters written by Bodan Khmelnytsky in the 17th century to the Tsar in Moscow, asking for Russia to take control of this area, which is modern Ukraine, which at the time was a Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth. The point is, the Russians believe Ukraine belongs to them. Now, th there's, there's more to this point, which we'll get to, but there's a lot more to the entire answer of reasoning to the current conflict. At this point in the interview, Putin has covered about 800 years of Russian history, and this is when Tucker starts to get impatient and presses President Putin. May I ask you, you're making the case that, that Ukraine, certainly parts of Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine is in, in effect Russia has been for hundreds of years. Why wouldn't you just take it when you became president 24 years ago. You have nuclear weapons, they don't. If it's actually your land, why did you wait so long? I'll tell you. I'm coming to that. This briefing is coming to an end. It might be boring, but it explains many things. I just don't know how it's relevant. When I heard this, I thought, Tucker's not going to make it out of Moscow. They're going to turn him into a, a, a nesting doll or something, and, and we're never going to see him again. But Putin calmly says, just, just hold on, I'm getting there. And Tucker pressured him to answer this question that I'm, I'm sure you're wondering right now. If Putin has been president of Russia for 24 years, why did he wait until now to act upon this claim to land? Well, just stick a pin in that for a second. Eventually, Putin arrives in the 20th century and the founding of the, the USSR, the Soviet Union, the key word here is union, the Soviet Union. Listen to what he says. In 1922, when the USSR was being established, the Bolsheviks started building the USSR and established the Soviet Ukraine, which had never existed before. Right. Stalin insisted that those republics be included in the USSR as autonomous entities. For some inexplicable reason, Lenin, the founder of the Soviet state, insisted that they be entitled to withdraw from the USSR. <clears throat> and again, for some unknown reasons, he transferred to that newly established Soviet Republic of Ukraine some of the lands together with people living there, even though those lands had never been called Ukraine. And yet, they were made part of that Soviet Republic of Ukraine. Ukrainian Soviet Republic was but one facet of the USSR's Soviet Union. And Putin would go on to explain that this area was actually much larger than modern Ukraine, but this is referencing the history of only the last century. But listen to this. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or the, the USSR, was a socialist communist state which lasted from 1922 to 1991. 
which was composed of 15 constituents or republics with varying levels of autonomy. And I'm not going to talk about all 15 republics, but just, just consider this list of, of places which are now all independent nations, if you will. Belarus, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, um, Georgia, Azerbaijan, uh, Lithuania, Moldova, Latvia, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, Turkmenistan, Estonia, and finally Ukraine. These republics were spread across Eastern Europe and Central Asia and were united under the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. However, each republic had its own government structures, local Communist Party organizations, and, and their own cultures. And this is just more evidence Putin gives for their claim to this area. After the World War II, Ukraine received, in addition to the lands that had belonged to Poland before the war, part of the lands that had previously belonged to Hungary and Romania. So Romania and Hungary had some of their lands taken away and given to the Soviet Ukraine, and they still remain part of Ukraine. So in this sense, we have every reason to affirm that Ukraine is an artificial state that was shaped at Stalin's will. Do you believe Hungary has a right to take its land back from Ukraine? and that other nations have a right to go back to their 1654 <clears throat> borders? I'm not sure whether they should go back to the 1654 borders. But given Stalin's time, so-called Stalin's regime, which as many claim saw numerous violations of human rights and violations of the rights of other states, one may say that they could claim back those lands of theirs while having no right to do that. It is at least understandable. We believe that Ukraine is an artificial state which was shaped at Stalin's will. This is a fantastic statement of this first position, that Ukraine is an illegitimate country which is land which belongs to both Russia and, he says, Hungary. But again, this is only the first point of explanation behind this conflict. Now here's the second, and, and this one I think is the most important. Listen to this and then I'll explain. And let's get into the fact that after 1991, when Russia expected that it would be welcomed into the brotherly family of civilized nations, nothing like this happened. You tricked us. I don't mean you personally when I say you. Of course, I'm talking about the United States. The promise was that NATO would not expand eastward. But it happened five times. There were five waves of expansion. We tolerated all that. We were trying to persuade them. We were saying, please don't. We are as bourgeois now as you are. We are market economy and there is no communist party power. Let's negotiate. President Putin said the United States promised them, after the Cold War and after the dissolve of the USSR, that NATO would not expand eastward, meaning toward Russia's western border, but it's happened five times. There was apparently some understanding with the prior Russian leader who essentially dissolved the Soviet Union that the new Russia would be accepted into what Putin called the Brotherly League of Nations. This is what we refer to as the Western world, a, a group of nations who not only hold common grounds of ideology and values, 
but who are united through global organizations, such as NATO, which you're going to hear a lot about today. NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is an intergovernmental military alliance formed in 1949 with the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty. The primary purpose of NATO is to ensure the collective defense of its members against external aggression. It currently consists of 30 member countries, primarily from North America and Europe. The core principle of NATO is Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, which states that an attack against one member of the alliance is considered an attack against all members. This agreement seeks to deter aggression and promote stability in the Euro-Atlantic region. The next fact about NATO is important. They facilitate military cooperation among its members through joint training exercises shared defense capabilities, and coordination of military operations. In other words, the United States, being a leading member and founder of NATO, could find itself in Eastern Europe conducting military operations because of our commitments there. Now, NATO has evolved since its inception to address changing security challenges. After the Cold War, NATO expanded its membership to include some countries in Eastern Europe, and it wasn't much longer after this that Vladimir Putin was given the reins as president of the new post-communist Russia. Putin referred to the five times of NATO expansion where they've moved towards Russia, or the five waves of expansion since he's been the president. If you look at NATO's last five expansions in 2004, 2009, 2017, 2020 and 2023, they're adding all the countries surrounding Russia. They're encroaching on Russia, and and there's more coming. Finland, Sweden, Georgia, and Ukraine have asked or have been asked to join NATO. And this would virtually border Russia's entire western boundary. Now, returning to Putin's account, in 2000, the year 2000, when Putin became president, Bill Clinton, the outgoing president in the U.S., came to visit him. He asked Clinton if Russia could join NATO. Seems like a great idea, right? Well, now, this is after Russia attempted to create a unified defense system with the United States and Europe when Bush Sr. was in office, but they were rejected. They were turned down. A short time later, Bill Clinton is about to to leave office when Putin asks him about joining NATO, and and Bill said to him, I think so. But then, literally, that night, he had changed his mind by dinnertime. Putin speculated that this resistance to join NATO was because of Russia's size and probably their historical ideation. They were communists. Watch. To get to motive, I know you're clearly bitter about it. Um, I understand. But why do you think the West rebuffed you then? Why the hostility? Why did the end of the Cold War not fix the relationship? What motivates this from your point of view? You said I was bitter about the answer. No, it's not bitterness. It's just a statement of fact. 
We're not bride and groom, bitterness, resentment. It's not about those kind of matters in such circumstances. We just realized we weren't welcome there, that's all. Okay, fine. But let's build relations in another manner. Let's work for common ground elsewhere. Why we received such a negative response, you should ask your leaders. I can only guess why. Too big a country with its own opinion and so on. And the United States, I've seen how issues are being resolved in NATO. This is the second point, which we'll come back to, trust me. The first explanation for this conflict is the, the historic claim to Ukraine, but the second has to do with this Western alliance, this global military organization known as NATO, Putin and his predecessor tried numerous times for unity with the Western world and to be accepted into what he called the Brotherly League of Nations. This third point is closely related to the second, but it's worth examining on its own. Watch this. I repeatedly raised the issue that the United States should not support separatism or terrorism in the North Caucasus. But they continue to do it anyway. And political support, information support, financial support, even military support came from the United States and its satellites for terrorist groups in the Caucasus. I once raised this issue with my colleague, also the President of the United States. He says, it's impossible, do you have proof? I said, yes. I was prepared for this conversation and I gave him that proof. He looked at it. And you know what he said? I apologize, but that's what happened. I'll quote. He says, well, I'm gonna kick their ass. We waited and waited for some response. There was no reply. I said to the FSB director, write to the CIA, what is the result of the conversation with president? He wrote once, twice, and then we got a reply. We have the answer in the archive. The CIA replied, we have been working with the opposition in Russia, we believe that this is the right thing to do, and we will keep on doing it. Just ridiculous. Well, okay, we realized that it was out of the question. Forces in opposition to you. So you're saying the CIA is trying to overthrow your government. Of course, they meant in that particular case the separatists, the terrorists who fought with us in the Caucasus. In other words, in 2008, under President Bush, the United States was deliberately attempting to undermine Putin's government through financial, informational, and militaristic support to separatist groups and terrorist groups in Russia. And Bush lied to him about it. Coincidentally, it was that same year that NATO began to open its doors to Ukraine. Not so many years later, when President Obama was in office, Ukraine held a, a presidential election according to uh, their own constitution, which allowed for two rounds of voting, and uh, Viktor Yanukovych won. But that's not who the United States or the, the West preferred to have in power there. And Putin holds that their reaction was to effectively conduct a coup d'etat. Watch. Before that. No, this was before that, after President Kuchma, Viktor Yanukovych, won the elections. However, his opponents did not recognize that victory. The US supported the opposition and the third round was scheduled. What is this? 
This is a coup. The US supported it and the winner of the third round came to power. Imagine if in the US something was not to someone's liking and the third round of election, which the US constitution does not provide for, was organized. Nonetheless, it was done in Ukraine. Okay, Viktor Yushchenko, who was considered a pro-Western politician, came to power. Fine, we have built relations with him as well. He came to Moscow with visits. We visited Kiev. I visited too. We met in an informal setting. If he's pro-Western, so be it. It's fine. Let people do their job. The situation should have developed inside the independent Ukraine itself. As a result of Kuchma's leadership, things got worse and Viktor Yanukovych came to power after all. Maybe he wasn't the best president and politician. I don't know. I don't want to give assessments. If you're keeping tabs, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Russia was denied admittance to NATO three times by three different presidents. They were denied a cooperative defense system, and the United States was working, was directly involved in attempting to overthrow Putin's government in 2008 and Ukraine's government in 2014. But of course, this is not where this ends. So, in 2008, the doors of NATO were opened for Ukraine. In 2014, there was a coup, they started persecuting those who did not accept the coup, and it was indeed a coup. They created a threat to Crimea, which we had to take under our protection. In 1954, Crimea was transferred from one part of the Union to the Ukrainian part of the Soviet Union, or Russia. But fast forward 60 years, Ukraine experienced political unrest and protests culminating in that ousting of President Viktor Yanukovych. Amidst this turmoil, Russia moved to occupy key sites in Crimea. This led to the controversial referendum held in March 2014, in which Crimea voted to secede from Ukraine and join the Russian Federation. The annexation of Crimea by Russia was condemned by Ukraine, by pretty much all Western countries and the international community, leading to sanctions against Russia. And this was when Obama was president. Now here's why they did this. Putin views NATO as a, quote, war machine and sees them not only as a security threat to Russia, but a financial threat to Russia. So when you think about these last two points, NATO's encroachment and the looming threat to Russia and the United States' covert opposition to Russia, it seems pretty obvious that the Western world has been trying to bring Russia down, trying to bring it to its knees and, ha and has been for more than 30 years. Russia is trying to prevent that from happening. Why would we do this? That, that's what I've been asking. Why would the United States do this? Stay with me. I, we're only halfway through this, and, and I'm, I'm leading up to the biggest point of all. The biggest takeaway from, from this entire interview. Obviously, this interview is, is a long-winded answer to the question of Russia's involvement with Ukraine. And here's what you can gather at just at this point. This conflict did not start in 2022, and as, as Western media 
suggests. Was there anyone for you to talk to? Did you call a US President's Secretary of State and say, if you keep militarizing Ukraine with NATO forces, this is gonna get, this is gonna be a, we're gonna act. Мы постоянно об этом говорили. We talked about this all the time. We addressed the United States and European countries' leadership to stop these developments immediately. In other words, this conflict began years ago, which was instigated, quite frankly, by NATO and the United States. Russia is trying to stop it. They tolerated it up to the point of 2022, and, and that's where we're at today. Now, this got me thinking about Donald Trump, who during his presidency made various statements about NATO, ranging from criticism to support. He criticized how much the United States was supporting NATO financially and demanded that the other nations pay their fair share. He questioned their relevance and their effectiveness in modernity, and yet he stayed committed to the, the U.S. commitments to NATO. Now, we're going to come back to Donald Trump in just a minute, but... Let's continue with this subject of, of NATO. One of the central things that has been communicated by the West is this idea that this conflict could lead to a global conflict or a World War III, you know? Tucker asked Putin about this. From the outside, it seems like this could devolve or evolve into something that brings the entire world into conflict and could um, initiate some, a nuclear launch. And so why don't you just call Biden and say, let's work this out? What's there to work out? It's very simple. I repeat, we have contacts through various agencies. I will tell you what we are saying on this matter and what we are conveying to the U.S. leadership. If you really want to stop fighting, you need to stop supplying weapons. It will be over within a few weeks. That's it. And then we can agree on some terms. Before you do that, stop. What's easier? Why would I call him? What should I talk to him about? Or beg him for what? And, and what messages do you get back? You're going to deliver such and such weapons to Ukraine? Oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, please don't. What is there to talk about? Do you think NATO is worried about this becoming a global <clears throat> war or a nuclear conflict? At least that's what they're talking about. And they're trying to intimidate their own population with an imaginary Russian threat. This is an obvious fact. Tucker asked why Putin would not just speak to Biden to end this conflict, which could potentially set off global conflict. And Putin says they already know what has to happen. The U.S. does. If you really want to stop fighting, you need to stop supplying weapons, and it will be over within a few weeks. But I want you to remember Putin saying these claims to a nuclear threat or, or a global conflict are lies or propaganda perpetrated by the West, or at least that's what he said. And the subject continues. The threat I think you're referring to is a Russian invasion of Poland, Latvia, expansionist behavior. Is, can you imagine a scenario where you sent Russian troops to Poland? 
Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. It's just threat-mongering. Well, the argument, I know you know this, is that, well, he invaded Ukraine, he has territorial aims across the continent, and you're saying unequivocally you don't. It is absolutely out of the question. You just don't have to be any kind of analyst. It goes against common sense to get involved in some kind of a global war. And a global war will bring all humanity to the brink of destruction. It's obvious. He outright said that Russia is not expansionist and that you'd have to be a fool to pursue global unrest because he understands that another global war in this age would bring humanity to practical extinction. This directly contradicts, directly contradicts the narrative we've been fed for years by multiple administrations. And this is demonstrated by Putin's willingness to negotiate. So I just want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding what you're saying. I don't think that I am. I think you're saying you want a negotiated settlement to what's happening in Ukraine. Right. And we made it. We prepared the huge document in Istanbul that was initialed by the head of the Ukrainian delegation. He affixed his signature to some of the provisions, not to all of it. He put his signature and then he himself said, we were ready to sign it and the war would have been over long ago, 18 months ago. However, Prime Minister Johnson came, talked us out of it, and we missed that chance. Well, you missed it, you made a mistake, let them get back to that, that is all. Putin reiterates towards the end of the interview that the US is supplying financial and military support to Ukraine. Ukraine also will not negotiate with them. In fact, he says Zelensky banned negotiations. The Western world will not let them negotiate, as was the case with uh, Boris Johnson. He says it multiple times in this interview that they are ready to end this conflict, but there has to be negotiations and de-escalation. Again, this is directly contradictory to the narrative. That's why he said this could be over in, in two weeks. And this is where we return to Donald Trump again. This reminded me of what Trump has said on the campaign trail. Trump has said that he could end this conflict in 24 hours, for which he's mocked and he's laughed at and he's ridiculed. Yet Poland's president, he was asked about this, and he said, I can say from my personal experience as the president of the Polish Republic, what Trump promised to me was fulfilled. Therefore, I can say that President Trump keeps his word, and if he says something, he takes it seriously. Yes, Trump said 24 hours, and Putin said two weeks, but the point is that Putin has made it clear to the Biden administration and to the world now that he's more than willing to resolve the situation. All you have to do is sit down and talk. Does that sound like a genocidal maniac to you? Now, I've got to be honest, at this point in the interview, my head was spinning. 
I was questioning everything. I was doubting the conclusions I was drawing. But I knew for certain that somebody has been lying to us. And it's either Vladimir Putin in this interview, or it's our own governments. And then Putin said this. Do the United States need this? What for? Thousands of miles away from your national territory. Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than 33 trillion dollars. You have nothing better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine? Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia? Make an agreement, already understanding the situation that is developing today, realizing that Russia will fight for its interests to the end? And realizing this, actually return to common sense, start respecting our country and its interests. This clip is so important that it bears repeating. Putin said just then, does the United States need this? What for? Thousands of miles away from your national territory. Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than $33 trillion. You have nothing to better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine? Wouldn't it be better to, to negotiate with Russia? Make an agreement? Realizing that Russia will fight for its interests to the end? Start respecting our country and its interests. Freebies. This is where the light bulb came on for me. Putin says that Russia is fighting for herself. He's speaking as a president of a nation who is literally fighting for the well-being of his constituents, the security of his people, and the financial security of his, of his own country. This is called nationalism. To have loyalty and devotion to your nation. Merriam-Webster defines this as a sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others. But what is the opposite of nationalism or patriotism? If Vladimir Putin is solely committed to the well-being of Russia, the opposite of that nationalism is globalism. Globalism is the idea of treating the whole world as a proper sphere for political influence. Globalism seeks to eliminate nationalism, quite frankly, and individualistic systems, individual systems, and draft the world into a unified system, a single party. And who is it that opposes Russia's nationalism? If everything Putin says is true, Russia is not being imperialist or expansionist or fascistic at all. They are focused on the 143 million people who live there. They're focused on their nation, achieving their own success. And who is it that stands against them? Well, here's my light bulb statement. This is my theory, and I hope you're ready for it because here it comes. Are we the bad guys? Because it seems like Russia is fighting the globalists. 
which clearly seems to define the Western world, NATO, and, and the United States. The globalists want to create a single system of governance. The globalists want to create a single monetary system, which we'll come back to. The globalists say they, they want to create a common defense to achieve world peace, but that will never happen. And, and this is, once again, when we come back to Donald Trump. Trump is the most patriotic nationalist president we've had, at least in my lifetime, and probably since Ronald Reagan. And the entire world, the entire world, was opposed to him. Trump criticized or removed us from global initiatives. Trump's philosophy was America first. And that's, quite frankly, what got him elected. He spoke frequently about his predecessor, Barack Obama, apologizing to the world for the United States. And for this nationalist philosophy, he paid dearly. One of the most corrupt countries on the planet aided in his first impeachment. And of course, I'm talking about Ukraine. And it's clear that he and Vladimir Putin got along with each other. I mean, I find it interesting that Trump is never mentioned in this interview. And yet, while Trump was in office, there were zero problems with Russia. Zero. Now, my theory is further explained by competing monetary systems. We can't have numerous currencies. The globalists want to have a single currency and a digital one at that. While the U.S. dollar has nearly a 60% market share in foreign reserves, which is far above all other currencies, uh, the U.S. dollar is steadily declining on an annual basis as it becomes less and less the, the global reserve currency. In fact, we're at a 30-year low. Why is that? Well, if, if a nation's national debt increases rapidly, it erodes its currency value. In the last decade alone, the, the United States government has printed trillions and trillions of dollars, devaluing our currency in the process and accruing our national debt to the tune of $33 trillion, which Putin alluded to. I'm not saying this is definitely the case, but if you're a globalist, then these physical currencies have to go, especially the U.S. dollar. If the U.S. dollar can be destroyed, then we've got an open avenue for creating a common digital currency. Now, Russia is a big country, but it's one of the world leaders in exporting oil. At one point in the interview, Putin says that Russia's economy was one of the leading European economies last year, and this was despite the, the sanctions and restrictions imposed on them and against them. It's also no coincidence that Russia and their allies have been establishing their own precious metals-backed currency. Listen to what he says about the U.S. dollar and the BRICS currency. As for BRICS, where Russia took over the presidency this year, the BRICS countries are, by and large, developing very rapidly. Look, if memory serves me right, back in 1992, the share of the G7 countries in the world economy amounted to 47%, whereas in 2022, it was down to, I think, a little over 30%. The BRICS countries accounted for only 16% in 1992, 
but now their share is greater than that of the G7. It has nothing to do with the events in Ukraine. This is due to the trends of global development and world economy, as I mentioned just now. And this is inevitable. This will keep happening. It is like the rise of the sun. You cannot prevent the sun from rising. You have to adapt to it. How do the United States adapt? With the help of force, sanctions, pressure, bombings, and use of armed forces. The BRICS countries are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Two of those countries are without question the United States' sworn enemies. The question that I'm posing and what I've been speculating about and theorizing about all week is, is this a matter of globalization and economic dominance? It, it, is that what this conflict is all about? Listen, my high school history teacher, one of them, Mr. Jones, would repeatedly say, chapter after chapter, that money makes the world go round. And by that, he meant that money was the ultimate motivating factor in countless world events and events pertaining to the United States. Now, there's, there's two more brief things that we have to discuss from the interview. The first would be the fourth reason for this Ukrainian conflict, and that is Putin's claim to denazifying Ukraine. You'll have to watch the interview for yourself, but, but this is at about the 90-minute mark. But Tucker asked Putin about denazification in Ukraine as a part of Russia's militaristic action there. Putin basically makes the case that Nazism is still alive in Ukraine, including Zelensky, who applauded a literal Nazi in a Canadian parliament meeting. He says this is a problem for Russians because Hitler exterminated not only Jews, but also Poles and Russians. And Putin suggests that Zelensky is either a neo-Nazi himself, or he serves this faction in Ukraine. Now you can take that or leave it, but take a look at this photo. You're seeing a female Ukrainian soldier, and, and it may be hard for you to see online, but there is a patch on the center of her chest which looks like a circle or a sun that has several lightning bolt-like rays coming off of it. Now, this next image shows you what this is. It's called the Black Sun, or in German, Schwarz Sun, which was used by the Nazis in Germany and is still used today by neo-Nazis. Here it is on the floor of a castle in Germany. Here it is on a belt buckle. And here it is again on the Ukrainian soldier. Ukraine also has a military unit known as the Azov Battalion. Here's their logo. You can see the Black Sun symbol in the background. And the main emblem literally looks like the swastika but it's actually another German symbol called the Wolf's Angel. I know this is super bizarre, but so was Putin's claim to wiping out neo-Nazism in Ukraine. The last thing that was honestly stunning from the interview was hearing Putin talk about Christianity, or specifically the Russian Orthodox Church. In the first 30 minutes of the interview, when Putin was recounting the Russian history, uh, he talked about this national faith, and throughout the interview, he made mentions of this 
as if it was his own faith. Again, this is startling to hear when we've been led to believe that this man is a maniacal fascist. But just take a listen. But can I, can I say that the, the one way in which the religions are different is that Christianity is specifically a nonviolent religion. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, don't kill. How can a leader who has to kill of any country, how can a leader be a Christian? How do you reconcile that to yourself? It is very easy when it comes to protecting oneself and one's family, one's homeland. We won't attack anyone. Tucker asked him, how do you square your supposed faith with going to war? And Putin says, it's very easy when it comes to protecting oneself and one's family, one's homeland. We won't attack anyone. St. Augustine said as much 1,600 years ago. Jesus himself would have agreed to this, which you can learn all about in my fourth episode titled, By a Sword. I bring this up not only because of the Christianity discussed, but because Putin makes the point over and over and over that they're acting out of self-defense, not an attack. Now, this is further explained in something he says after this clip. He, he asked, when did the developments in Ukraine start? He says, since the coup d'etat and the hostility in the Donbass began. That's when they started. We are protecting our people, ourselves, our homeland, and our future. In other words, he's saying they are acting out of protection and self-defense and self-preservation in response to the political hostilities of the West, mainly the United States, and the mounting pressure and security threat that NATO poses to them. Toward the end of the interview, Putin is talking about the inevitability of healing and unity between these two sides of people who share ancestral backgrounds and religious faith. He says, what is happening is to a certain extent a civil war. Everyone in the West thinks that the Russian people have been split by hostilities forever. No, they will be reunited. The unity is still there. Now listen to this. Putin asks, why are the Ukrainian authorities dismantling the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Because it brings together not only the territory, it brings together our souls. No one will be able to separate the soul. So he's even saying their Christianity bonds them, despite the conflict. He says healing will inevitably happen despite the fact that Ukraine is supposedly dismantling the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Once again, another surprise in all of this. Why is this all so stunning to hear? If the things that we're hearing from Vladimir Putin are true, we have been lied to for years. If they're not true, then Putin is one of the most impressive liars on the planet to sit there for over two hours and lie with such extravagant detail. You can be the one to decide. I'm just interpreting everything that was discussed. At one point, Putin said, Victory in the war of propaganda. 
it is very difficult to defeat the United States because the United States controls all the world's media. Perhaps this explains a lot. Well, let me know what you think about all of this in the comments or send me an email. I'm Blake at wethefreeshow.com and that's going to do it for me today. What'll it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be and we'll see you next time on We The Free.